Amen. You ready for some good news? You ready for the gospel? The God spiel? It's good stuff. Here it comes from John chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Gospel of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Yeah. Well, friends, we are in the Gospel of John as we continue on our Route 66 journey that we began last fall making our way all the way through the Bible, and we've landed in John at this time, and today we've come to one of perhaps the most well-known stories about Jesus and his ministry, the blessing at the wedding at Cana. Now, if you were here last week, you know that this story immediately follows Jesus recruiting and calling his disciples to follow him, meeting each one of them where they were, sharing who he was, inviting them to come and see what he was all about. And as he did that, he made them a promise. He said, you follow me and you will see signs and wonders and miracles and incredible things. You will see this if you come and follow me. So what's the first thing that Jesus does as he gathers his disciples to come and follow him? What's the momentous, amazing, powerful miracle? They go to a wedding. They've run out of wine. Jesus makes more. Amen. I mean, really? This is it. This is what you decide to do, Jesus. This is the Jesus who we know in reviewing other parts of the story, heals the sick, gives sight to the blind, raises up the lame to walk, raises the dead to life. Those are the miracles and signs of Jesus. And we're at a party. There's no wine. Jesus makes more. So why does this matter? Why is this here? Well, as is often the case, there is more to the story than meets the eye. Let me dispel, first of all, a couple of false understandings of what's happening in this story and perhaps some false understandings in general. Okay, I'll start with this. Jesus did not turn water into grape juice. 
I know that's going to stun some of you, perhaps based on your background more than others. But this was wine. This was fermented grape juice. When the Bible talks about wine, it is talking about fermented grape juice. When it's first pressed, it's not fermented. Then it quickly goes down into a vat where it starts to ferment. There is alcohol in the wine, okay? That's the reality of it. There is not a biblical scholar who will debate this. There's certainly not a historian who would debate this because you look at the Mediterranean and the Middle East, this was common practice. Wine was a big deal, still is. Okay, so important to understand that. But now here's the second thing. Jesus was not encouraging drunkenness. That's not what he was doing here. The Bible also speaks about that and has some pretty strong words. It never is there a place in the Bible where drunkenness is viewed favorably, not at all. And there are many reasons for people deciding to abstain from alcohol. Totally valid reasons, okay? I don't want anybody to think otherwise of that, okay? But please don't bring that thought into a religious context and expect that, well, no, Jesus didn't actually drink wine. Yes, he did. So did his disciples. It's in the Bible. So that's the first thing. I just want to kind of get those things aside so that we can dive into this story to see really what this story is about because it's an amazing story and it's a powerful story. There are two questions. I'm going to bring you back to seminary with me. Two questions that one of my seminary professors put in place that are really important questions to help interpret the Bible. And those two questions are this. The first one is, what does the new have to do with the old? What is the Old Testament and the New Testament? How do they interact? What do they mean to each other? What is that about? And the second question is, what do you do with miracles? What do you do with them? What do they mean? What are they about? And what's wonderful about this passage of Scripture is that these two questions converge right in this passage. The new and the old, as well as a miracle. It shows up right here. So what do you do with this, and what do we do with this passage? Well, if we've been tracking along here, and if you've been walking with us through our journey through the Old Testament, you'll know that there's a theme that keeps showing up again and again and again in the Old Testament, and it's this promise of a coming Messiah. Messiah is a fancy word. It means anointed one. Anointings were for kings. So Jesus the Christ, who is Jesus the Messiah, is also Jesus the King, but that is what who, who they were waiting for and a promise given to them in the Old Testament. They were awaiting a Messiah, the Messiah, the true king, the one that would rescue them, the one that would set things right. That's what the Old Testament is pushing towards and understanding. And when this Messiah comes, this Messiah will usher in something called the Messianic Age. What is that? Well, it's the age of the king. It's the age of the king's domain and dominion, the kingdom. The kingdom. The kingdom would come. So when you see kingdom and messianic age, they are interwoven. They are tied together when it comes to talking about the Messiah. Okay? This messianic age would come. And there would be some key features of this messianic age. As a matter of fact, we find in Romans 14, verse 17, a wonderful summary 
The verse starts off by saying, the kingdom of God is not about eating and drinking. Interestingly, we talk about that as we're looking at this passage, right? Instead, it's about righteousness, peace, and joy from the Holy Spirit. Righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's the kingdom of God. Those are markers of the kingdom. Righteousness, a wonderful thing. What is righteousness? It's when justice and mercy are taking place in the actions of God's people. There is justice and there is mercy, true justice, God's justice, God's mercy happening in the midst of God's people. That's righteousness. What about peace? Well, peace is when there is prosperity and right relationships between God's people. Prosperous and right relationships between God's people brought from God. That's peace, shalom. Many, many layers to that word, but that's kind of a brief snapshot of that. Righteousness, peace, and joy. What about joy? Well, last service, Joy Erickson was here, so I said, there's joy, boom, just like that. Joy is good by her namesake because joy means deep contentment and genuine celebration in every circumstance. In all the difficulties, in all the high points and the low points, joy is a sustaining type of thing that comes into our lives as a gift of the kingdom of God. So righteousness, peace, and joy. That's the age of the king. And when this king arrives, there would be some signs as to his arrival. And one of those signs we hear about in Amos chapter 9, verses 13 through 15. Hear what this passage says. The time will come, says the Lord, when the grain and the grapes will grow faster than they can be harvested. Then the terraced vineyards on the hills of Israel, Israel will drip with sweet wine. I will bring my exiled people of Israel back from distant lands, and they will rebuild their ruined cities and live in them again. They will plant vineyards and gardens. They will eat their crops and drink their wine. I will firmly plant them there in their own land. They will never again be uprooted from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. Did you hear something talked about in there? Wine. Wine and crops, grapes growing so fast that they're, they're just as fast as they're harvesting them, they're growing again, supernaturally. Grain that is overflowing, wine that is dripping down from the vineyards and the hills of Israel. It's a vision of the Messianic age. Now here's the thing, there are many scriptures like this throughout the Old Testament there are some other scriptures that speak to the times when God is upset with his people, when God's wrath is pouring out on his people, and in those passages, you hear about a lack of wine or a lack of grain. So lack of grain, not good. Plenty of grain, good. Lack of, rain or lack of wine, bad. Lots of wine, good. Okay? That's the imagery that we get from this Old Testament understanding of the Messianic age. It's just one sign. There are many things that go into this, but this one sign is about there being an abundance of wine. So, let's come back to the wedding at Cana. 
The party has started. The celebration is there. The wine is flowing, and it's running out before the guests expect it to run out. Remember, not enough wine, bad. Hey, okay? enough wine, good. So here, as a host of the party, this celebration that's happening, to run out of wine would be a sign of disgrace. It would be a place of embarrassment and shame for the hosts of this party. So here's Jesus, and Jesus turns water into wine. Water into wine. And not just a little bit. 180 gallons of water turned into wine. I did the math. The computer helped me. <laughs> 180 gallons of wine would be enough to fill over 900 modern bottles of wine. 900 bottles of wine. I don't know how big this wedding was, but that's a lot of wine. As a matter of fact, I'm sure all of this wine was not drunk by the people who were there. I'm sure there was extra. I'm sure it, it went home with some people. It was shared with neighbors. The story would go out about this wedding to the entire area. And when people saw this much wine, they would ask themselves, has the Messiah come? Has the Messiah arrived? Because this would be a sign that the Messianic age has come, and that's exactly what Jesus wanted them to see. It's precisely what Jesus wanted them to know and to believe. The age of Messiah has come that his kingdom has been inaugurated and all the promises of God's salvation, healing, and blessing have arrived in abundance. That's the picture. That's why this is where Jesus starts is because he's starting at the place that people would recognize the Messiah has come. Now we need to keep an eye on this Jesus and see what else follows. And it also says something more. It says that Jesus, who is the word of God and was with God in the beginning, has moved into the neighborhood, just as the gospel writer says in chapter 1, to be with his people in the middle of their daily lives. Something as simple and ordinary as a wedding, an everyday occurrence. Something as simple as wine, an everyday drink. Jesus speaks and comes into both of those ordinary things. Now, I've been to a lot of weddings. I've been in ministry for 25 years. I've presided at a lot of ceremonies. I've been to dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of receptions. And believe me, in many of those receptions, I thought it would be a good idea if the wine would get turned back into water. So the point of this message isn't about saying that drunkenness or alcohol is somehow this great, wonderful thing. It's understanding in the context of that it is written, to the people it is written to, what this is all about. And it's about the dawning of the Messianic age. The kingdom has come. And Jesus is the life of the party. 
Jesus comes bringing life because that's a promise of the kingdom, that there would be life. It's a promise of Jesus that he would refer to again, that John would speak of again later on in his gospel, and of his deep desire that this kingdom of God would come to you in abundance. You know, in the Lord's Prayer, which we often pray here as a part of our services, maybe you grew up praying it in this church or in another church. Maybe you didn't pray it that often, but there's a, a paragraph right at the beginning. It's called the second petition. It goes like this. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And Jesus instructs his disciples and those of us today to pray that prayer. Now, here's an interesting question. If Jesus' arrival says that the kingdom has come, then why do we pray for the kingdom to come? I mean, it's already happened. So why should we pray for the kingdom to come and God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven if Jesus is already inaugurated in the kingdom? Martin Luther had a good answer for this an answer that I really appreciate. He said, the kingdom comes whether you or I pray for it or not. But we pray that the kingdom would come to us, to you. That's why you pray. Lord, may your kingdom come to me, into my life. May your will be done in me, in my life, through me. It's personal. Jesus steps right into that personal place with you. So when we pray for the kingdom to come, yes, the kingdom has arrived and the kingdom is still coming. To you and to me, every time that we pray and ask. In abundant life, you know, Jesus speaks this, and John speaks it in his gospel. John gives the reason for writing his gospel later in the book, like in John chapter 20. He says these words in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. It says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So these words weren't just written for the first disciples, which they certainly were. They were also written for you and for me so that we can believe that this kingdom life is truly for us that Jesus is truly for us, that Jesus is truly who he said he is, and that we can believe and trust in him and receive his life into our life. That's why it's there. So let me ask you, what are some signs that Jesus' abundant life has come to you? What do we look for? There are a lot of different things, but I want to point out a few this morning that I see often in the lives of God's people that I look at and go, well, that's a sign that the kingdom is near, that the kingdom is coming in the life of a Christian. The first one is this, an abundance of conviction and curiosity. 
conviction, and curiosity. Now, when you hear those two words next to each other, you might think, boy, those don't really sound like they necessarily go together, Pastor. (laughs) And you know what? Oftentimes in the lives of people, they don't. We know some people who have strong convictions. They know what they know, and they're sure to let you know it too. And there's no room for anything else other than what they believe and what they know, and they want you to know it. But they have no curiosity. They have no place of wondering or openness to new information that may come their way. Now, we also know some people who are abundantly curious and have no convictions whatsoever. They're always up for exploring new things and checking new things out and finding out new things, but, but there's nothing there that they truly stand upon. That's why these two are meant to go together. Conviction and curiosity. And here's a phrase that I've learned that I want to teach you that I think helps us to step into that place of abundant conviction and curiosity. You ready for it? I'm going to ask you to repeat it after me. It's just four words. Okay? So repeat after me. I could be wrong. There it is. The key to conviction and curiosity is to engage with people in a place of saying, you know what, I could be wrong. Now, for those who really tend to lean more towards the conviction side of the equation, you might be like, "Uh, but but if I'm talking about Jesus, I can't be wrong about Jesus. Really? You know what, I've been a Christian for a long, long time, and there are plenty of things that I continue to learn about Jesus that challenge me and change me and that I have to deal with. To be able to say, yes, I believe in Jesus. I trust he is the Messiah. But have I got a lot more to learn about what that means? Absolutely. So I could be wrong about some of the things that I think about those things right now. So when you engage with someone, to be able to engage with a spirit that says, you know what, I could be wrong, but here's what I think. Here's what I believe. And here's what I'm wrestling with. Now why don't you share with me what you believe and what you think? This would be great for us to practice amongst Christians, but amazing to practice amongst those who are yet to become part of the family of God. To be able to be in a place as followers of Jesus where we can engage with folks who have left the church, never been a part of the church, have no idea what the church is about, have been abused or broken by the church, to be able to be in a place with them of going, you know what, I could be wrong about this, but let me share with you what I think, and then let me hear from you. I want to be open and curious to what it is that these things might mean for you. Now listen, I hear people all the time share thoughts that they have about Jesus, about God, about the Bible, and I know that you could be wrong. That's a joke, by the way, (laughs) because I know that I could be wrong. But if we can approach things with that type of curiosity and conviction, I think it would be a powerful sign that God's kingdom is coming to you and in your life. Let me give you a couple other things that I think are abundant signs. When there is an abundance of generosity, when I see somebody who lives in an abundance of generosity in their life, that's a kingdom sign. And you know these kind of people. These are the folks who walk around, they just are looking for ways to be able to give generously of their time, of their talents, 
of their financial gifts. They're just looking for places to be able to invest what they have. And they just ooze this kind of generosity about them. Folks, that's not natural. That is supernatural. That's a part of the kingdom's work. An abundance of flowing wine, an abundance of of flowing time and treasure and talents amongst God's people. Generosity, abundant generosity. An incredible marker that the kingdom has come to someone's life. And then, of course, the two other words that go right along with that passage in Romans, abundant peace and abundant joy. But some of the ways that people express this peace that I've come to appreciate is people who come into the room and they are thermostats, not thermometers. I learned this phrase a few years ago and it stuck with me because it's such a powerful one and it's one that I need to keep learning myself. You know the difference between a thermostat and a thermometer? A thermometer changes based on the temperature in the room, right? Comes into the room and goes, oh, well, this is really heated. It's really, people are anxious. I'm going to join in. Or they come into a room and it's really dead and it's really cold and there's really nothing going on. They're like, oh, okay. That's being a thermometer. Thermostat comes into the room and changes the environment and the temperature that they're in. You know these kind of people. I know these kind of people. I know a number of them. I'm going to pick on Dan Lugo because I think Dan Lugo is one of the best at this. And I appreciate it every time he comes into the room because he does come and he brings that thermostat. But you know these kind of people that you're around. They're people of peace, right? They come in and it's like, oh, man, I'm just glad that you're here. It just changes the atmosphere. That's a spiritual gift. That's a sign of the kingdom. And then, of course, joy. People who are unfazed by their circumstances. I've seen joy at work in the lives of people who, from every outward appearance, have no reason to have any joy. But they do. They seem completely unfazed by the circumstances around them. They're not ignorant of them. They don't pretend they're not there. They just go, you know what? I just have this gift of joy that's been given to me. So abundant curiosity and conviction, abundant generosity, abundant peace, abundant joy, these are some of those characteristics that I see in the lives of God's people that just point to God's kingdom coming and his abundant life being there for them. So let me ask the hard question. What if you're not seeing or experiencing any of these signs in your own life? Does that mean that you're not a part of the kingdom? Does that mean that Jesus is hosting a party and you're not invited? No. Not at all. Because Jesus wants to be present with his people in every circumstance in their lives. Wherever you are, Jesus comes to meet you there, just like he did his first disciples. Whatever the circumstances are, Jesus comes to meet you there. That's his gift, is his presence And all he asks is that you trust him, to believe in who he is and the life that he comes to offer to you. I believe that God can bring these kind of experiences into your life. And if you're not seeing them right now, it's an even greater place to just open your hands before the Lord and say, God, I'm ready to receive. Don't work harder to try and get it. Don't fight for it. 
Just open your hands, a sign of surrender, and say, Lord, give me your life. Let your life come into me through the Holy Spirit, because all of it happens by God's gift. And the reality of our lives is that there's a kingdom that has come, and there's a kingdom that's not yet, because this kingdom won't finally come until Jesus comes again. And then all will be made right. But in the meantime, we live in this tension between the now and the not yet. And it's those are the places where we trust. The struggle is real, and Jesus is there right as real in the midst of it. We pray by faith that the kingdom would come to us, just like Jesus' first disciples. And we start by trusting in who Jesus is. Let's pray for his kingdom to come to us right now. Amen? Let's pray right where we are. Heavenly Father, you have sent your Son to be this gift to us all, the gift of Messiah. And you have ushered in this age 2,000 years ago, Lord. But each generation and each day, we have a new opportunity to say, Lord, come and let that kingdom come into my life. Let your will come into my life, right into the mess of where I am today. Come, Lord Jesus. Come sit at my table. Come walk in my home. Come make room in my heart, Lord, for your presence that you promised, that John spoke about, and that from that promise and from your presence would come life, and life in abundance. Lord, when we see so many other things in this world that don't give life, that don't protect life, that don't honor life, we pray, Lord, for your abundant life to come and fill us first so that it can overflow from us like new wine down the hills into a world that is thirsty and dry. Thank you for those promises. We open our hands to receive them today from you, Jesus. We pray this in the name of the King, Jesus the Christ. Amen.